Sunday School today is a theologian spotlight on John Brown of Haddington. Probably the most beloved Scottish minister in the 18th century. Brown, though caught caught in many conflicts in his life, considered his calling as a minister to be the highest calling of his life. In stark contrast to many ministers today whose life is defined by their doctorate or by their ministry, by the great efforts that they've done in publishing books, the men of the past considered the pastorate to be the lifeblood, their calling. And if all else failed, if their hands were broken and their ministries crushed, the pastorate would remain. John Brown was no different than this. And as a part of his ministry, he considered it a great duty to defend the doctrines of the Holy Scriptures. Brown is remarkable because he was born into obscurity and poverty. Unlike many of the doctors of the faith of that period of time who were born into wealth and and education, who were trained at Cambridge, John Brown of Haddington had no such advantage. He had no wealth, no station, no formal education growing up. He was born in 1722 in Carpow near Abernathy in Perth, Scotland. His father was a weaver and could not even afford to educate him. Though he did teach him how to read, catechized him, taught him the doctrines of the Holy Scriptures. John Brown of Haddington's father led family worship every single morning and every single evening in his house. John was born in the middle of the Marrow Controversy. We talked about this when we gave a theological spotlight on William Ames. If you want to be reminded of that, just go back and listen to the audio. We discussed it at length. So though he had little formal training, he learned Latin at a very young age and made practice of memorizing the catechisms, including the Westminster, John Flavel's catechism, and many others. His theological backbone, if you will, were the Reformed catechisms. In 1733, Ebenezer Erskine, James Fisher, Alexander Moncrief, and William Wilson seceded from the Church of Scotland and fathered a new organization which would become known as the Secession Church. So at this point in Scotland and England, you have the Church of England, you have the Roman Catholic Church, you have the Church of Scotland. Now the Church of Scotland was splitting, and hence the Secession Party. The Secession Party believed that the Church of Scotland had become impure. And so this was a reformation of sorts in Scotland. So John Brown joined Moncrief's church in Abernathy. Though when John turned 11, his father died, and by 13, his mother had died also. Shortly after, he became very sick. He became very ill. He says regarding the matter, I was left a poor orphan and had nothing to depend on but the providence of God, and I must say that the Lord hath been the father of the fatherless and the orphans stay. He did not have education, status, anything to fall back on. And in fact, when both of his parents died, he became so ill that many thought that he might die as well. It's actually said that the prayers of his sister were the means that God used to save John Brown's life. And at 13 and 14, having survived this great sickness, he read the major works of the period, including William Gouge and the letters of Samuel Rutherford. At 13 and 14, though, he wouldn't have a major salvation event until he was 19 in 1741. He was employed as a shepherd at the time uh, by, a, by an old man who read the scriptures with him and would sing psalms with him, was a great father of the faith to John Brown. But he became increasingly concerned with the welfare of his soul when a great fever broke out in Scotland. And he ran from the place where he was shepherding when the sheep had been stabled 
He ran two miles on three separate occasions to the nearest church to hear the word of God preached. One of these was on John 6.64. The text says, there are some of you that believe not. And he was convinced at this time that he was the greatest unbeliever in the whole of the world. The next morning, he heard a sermon on Isaiah 53.4, which the text says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Along This, along with another sermon on Isaiah 45.24, convinced him that he was drawn to the Lord Jesus Christ by the Father and had assurance of faith. But by 19, he had, by his own self-study, acquired some fluency in Greek, Hebrew, and Latin. He actually learned the Greek alphabet from the notes in his Latin copy of Ovid. His learning was so suspect by many because he was not formally trained that they actually said that the devil had taught him these things. Some were so suspicious of his learning that they rumored about him. And in fact, these rumors would not die for many years. People talked about this and this was... This is why John Brown of Haddington is is such a great example to look at. Because in this age of slander and lies and accusations, John Brown was in the same circumstance because the accusations made of John Brown were completely ridiculous. That the devil was teaching him Latin and Greek so that he could read his Bible. What an interesting thing for the devil to do to someone. He later remarked, though, that this affliction, these false accusations, these rumors, were one of God's kindest blessings to him. And in fact, afflictions are one of the kindest blessings that God can give to a believer. But while under suspicion of being influenced and taught by the devil, he went to a bookstore in St. Andrews and asked to buy a Greek New Testament And while he was in there, a professor was there, and he noticed the shoddy appearance of John Brown, and there was no way that this gentleman could have read any foreign language, let alone speak English for that matter. He he was a poor, poor person. And the professor said that if he could read the Greek New Testament, he would buy it for him. Shortly after, John Brown left that store with a free Greek New Testament. For a few years, Brown was a peddler, which essentially was someone who sold trinkets and items door-to-door. He would travel to neighboring towns and sell things. Now, the, the funny thing, though, with John Brown is that he wasn't a great salesman because he would go knocking on cottage doors and he'd walk in and spend hours upon hours talking about the various books that these people had in their libraries. At the end of these conversations, would forget that he was even there to sell something. So he wasn't a great salesman because of his great conversational skills and his ability to talk about extensive, talk extensively on literature. But during this time, Brown traveled a lot to attend church. At one time, he traveled 25 miles to attend Ebenezer Erskine's church for the biannual communion service. 25 miles. He was also a soldier. At the time, there was a conflict between the Papists and the Protestants, and he fought in defense of Edinburgh Castle against the Roman Catholics who attempted to recover the British throne in Scotland. Shortly after, in 1748, his dissatisfaction in the industry of sales led him to taking an actual teaching role at at, uh, Gurney Bridge and then a village Paris and Penquick. During this time, he devoted himself to vast memorization of the scriptures, and he studied the whole scope of literature and divinity during this time. He acquired a working knowledge of of, of Arabic, Syrian, Persian, Ethiopian, French, Spanish, Italian, Dutch, and German, on top of knowing Greek, Hebrew, and Latin. How did he do this? Um... He writes that he would sleep three to four hours a night. Later on, he commented uh, in his life and he said, yes, that was extremely detrimental to my health. I do not recommend it. (laughs) But you want to talk about anybody who's ever done anything great in this life. They don't sleep a lot. Sleep is a waste of time to these men. They're so driven, single in purpose. 
that they find it absurd that they would need to sleep when they are drawing upon the strength of the Lord. These men usually die by the time they're 45 or 50, but such is the case of great theologians. Yeah, they, have more, they do indeed more, have more to show for it. In April 1747, a division amongst the Scottish, Scottish Protestants took place called the Breach, which occurred due to an oath called the Burgess Oath, which was basically required. You had to take this oath kind of denouncing the papacy and in, in, in a certain sense swearing allegiance to, the, allegiance to the Scottish Church. And you had to do this if you wanted to vote, partake in trade, essentially be a citizen. So, of course, this causes a controversy. This causes a controversy because of the secession movement. There were certain ministers who said, we think that we succeeded. We think we've reformed the, Scot- the Scottish church. And the others said, no, we need to keep going. And so the breach was a conflict among the people that had split from the Scottish church initially. So in one sense, it affirmed against the papacy, which is great. I mean, the plain language of the declaration was, I mean, we would all affirm it if we were living in Scotland, if we didn't know the sort of political kind of theological problem of, uh, of what the statement was actually saying. But in the other sense, it affirmed that the Church of Scotland was the true Church of Scotland over and above the secession party. So Brown and the Erskins took the oath, but Moncrief and others did not which causes a little bit of issues. We're not going to really talk about that controversy, um, but just know that, that, that this is one of the great problems with state churches, is that whenever theo- theological disputes come into play, there's political maneuvering, as we're learning in church history, this is especially true. So a general synod was formed with its appointed head as Ebenezer Erskine to form a new seminary to train ministers. The first student to present himself was none other than John Brown Faddington. To which many members of the Presbytery scoffed at. They said, how could this uneducated and poor man possibly be qualified to pursue the pastorate? However, Ralph Erskine, Ebenezer Erskine's younger brother, came to his defense and shortly after was approved for theological studies under Ebenezer Erskine. And for anyone that is curious, the, the textbook that they, would, that they used and the textbook they used in all of the seminaries for many years after was none other than Francis Turretin's Institutes of Atlantic Theology. After his studies, he studied for quite some time and was an amazing student and a scholar Succeeded in his studies. He was ordained in 1750 and he was called to ministry. He had two places to choose from, but he accepted the call at Haddington and served there for 36 years until his death in 1787. He preached three times per Lord's Day and catechized his flock in their homes throughout the week, just like every Puritan minister that we've talked about so far. His preaching style was to preach as though he had never read any other book other than the Bible. This was his self-proclaimed effort and goal. He often quoted James Usher, who says, It will take all of our learning to make these things plain. He often begged that God would help him as a pastor, and that the moment that he ceased to glorify God in his ministry, that God himself would strike him dead. He was very vocal vocal about this declaration. He strongly disapproved of ministers who switched pastorates and were not faithful to their calling as a minister. Brown was fond of theologians such as Turretin, John Owen, von Maastricht, Thomas Boston, and of course the Erskines. Thomas Boston, who was a contemporary of John Brown, said about Brown that, quote, he was never more in his element than when in his study. John Brown was a passionate believer in the continued education of ministers, which is something that has been so lost in this culture that once you graduate seminary, you're done. You've attained it. Now go and lord over your people. Despite being a studious man, he would arise at 4 to 5 a.m. every single morning and spend the morning praying for his congregation. 
Sometimes he would even book the entire morning and devote it strictly unto prayer. He even lamented and was terribly conflicted at his neglect of prayer, despite doing this every morning. (laughs) If this kind of shows you the mindset and the heart of the Puritans. During his uh, ministry, he was often accused of many vain things. Many people disagreed with him, especially those that were in opposition to him in the, the controversy that I sort of mentioned previously. Despite this, he was said to seldom speak negatively of anyone. And if he received an accusation based on a rumor, he would say, I don't believe it. If I hear it, I'll believe it. Until then, talk no more of it. He was kind and soft-spoken, though he was a tremendously powerful polemicist. The greatest testimony of his ministry, though, and something that many people in the modern church have completely lost sight of, is the impact that he made on his actual congregation. Many people judge the worth of a minister's ministry by their success in debate or the amount of books that they've published or their popularity amongst the people, their titles, their, their, their doctorates, their accolades. John Brown considered the greatest success of his ministry the spiritual growth of his congregation at Haddington. And in fact, many of the, of the people in his congregation personally considered him as a spiritual father by the time he was done in his pastorate. In 1767, Brown was appointed as professor of divinity. First, upon being examined whether or not he could even be accepted into the program, many cast doubt upon his intellect and on his qualification only later to become the professor of divinity of that same school. He served with distinction for 20 years until his death. And as a professor, he taught his students as a father teaches a son. He stressed piety, not just dry theology. He made sure that his students were believers and not just academics. Which again is something that you can go all the way through a theological program at a seminary now without once praying with your teachers. In fact, I've read textbooks that are being used at seminary that do not mention the Lord once when talking about the Holy Scriptures. How is that possible? What a shame. How far we have fallen. And on February 25th, 1787, he preached his last two sermons and on his deathbed wrote a series of heartfelt memoirs lavishing his sons and daughters with with encouragement in the Lord. Said that that his deathbed was a time of just great encouragement to everybody and several months later he went to be with the Lord. Brown was loved by all. And in his ministry, he did indeed prolifically write. He wrote 30 books, of which his work Self-Interpreting Bible and Dictionary of the Holy Bible were the most popular. These made up what was called the Brown Bible. And they contained history, chronology, geography, notes, and reflections. It was reprinted 27 times in Britain and the United States and this would be called the library of John Brown, became as common in the 18th century Scotland as the Pilgrim's Progress became. Everybody knew of John Brown's works. They became a household item. His works were even used as homeschooling material as he included English grammar aids and vocabulary. He wrote two short catechisms which came to be known as Little Brown and Big Brown which were for the little kids and the big kids. The little brown had 202 questions, and the big brown had 743. And they were based on the shorter catechism of the Westminster Confession of Faith. uh, Yeah. The big brown. 
Yeah. So he wrote polemically. So something that I think our, our society has completely lost its mind about and doesn't know how to do anymore is proper polemics. Because John Brown, though loved by all, was very polemic in some cases. Against the things that needed to be pushed up against, he was polemic about. And in today's society, if you disagree with someone, they hit you on the back of the head and call you an idiot. Say, you're not allowed to do that. Oh, you minister of God, sit down and shut up. Listen to your lay people. Don't you know they know best? This was not the common opinion at the time of John Brown of Haddington. And in fact, we listened to the story of how Puritans, would, when they listened to the word preached, they believed, they genuinely believed they were hearing God speak himself. Not as though the minister was God, but though as God was speaking through the, the exposition of the scriptures. This has been completely lost. And in fact, if you've ever heard anybody talking poorly about their pastor for no other reason than to gossip or slander, they are the direct result of modernity and the rise of the laity in the 19th and 20th centuries. The lay people would have never thought to talk to a pastor like that historically. But he wrote polemically against the papacy and a lot against parents who didn't train their children up in the Lord. The work, he specifically preached a sermon called The Fearful Shame and Contempt of Those Professed Christians Who Neglect to Raise Up Spiritual Children in Christ. Now, you look at the fruit of, the, of a minister, you, 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 you look at the, the books that they've published, you look at their life, and oftentimes you can see how, what kind of person they were based on their legacy, their children and their children's children. Nearly all of John Brown of Haddington's sons became prominent ministers, teachers, historians, biographers. In fact, one of his grandsons became a medical doctor. And in fact, his descendants so endeared him that in 1987, they traveled from the U.S., where they eventually settled, back to Scotland to celebrate the bicentennial memorial of his death. He left a legacy of believers, of ministers, How many pastors can say that they've done that today? This is why the Holy Scriptures say that one must run their household accordingly. How many pastors do we know whose kids hate them? I can name five off the top of my head who are granted huge platforms. The theological legacy of John Brown of Haddington was immense. His literature became household items in Scotland. He was beloved and read and used in homeschooling curriculums, in catechetical curriculums. It might even be, stand to reason that it, is, it was as popular as maybe the Matthew Henry's commentary is to us now. But the work that I think he was most known for possibly was a seven-book systematic, which was organized by way of covenant theology. And this is the modern printing of it. And we're going to talk a little bit about some of the theology in it. But it was organized by way of covenant theology. And this is actually, you know, you're you're thinking like, oh, well, what does the organization of a systematic theology have to do with anything? Bovink dedicates a whole several sections in his prolegomena um, of Reformed dogmatics to how historically people have systemized the, the doctrines of the Bible. And so John Brown of Haddington considered that the covenantal perspective of the scriptures was the organizing principle of the scriptures. When we talked about our covenant theology series, we said the Bible itself is organized covenantally into Old and New Testament, right? Covenant documents to the people of God of old, covenant documents to the people of God in the last days, and together they form the covenant documentation for the people of God throughout the rest of time. But in a systematic theology, if this lets you know any sort of indication of what kind of teacher and professor and theologian he was, 
He offers a 16-page preface in which he says nine things to, to, his, to his students who are pursuing the pastorate. The first one is, see that you be real Christians yourselves. One of the greatest and most terrible plagues in the Christian church today and throughout the ages are unbelieving, uncaring, cold, dead-hearted ministers who have no passion for the gospel, only passion for the self-propagation of their own fame, their own name, their own glory. In fact, during the Puritan era, as we talked about, there was quite a common trend of dead, cold, dry orthodoxy. And by the time you get to men like Karl Barth, there was a vast outbreak of unbelieving ministers, preaching from Calvin's pulpit even. The second instruction that he gave, and this I think more ministers should properly examine before pursuing the pastorate, ponder what proper furniture you have for the ministerial work and labor to increase it. And by furniture they mean intelligence. Do not be, and, and this is a sad reality I think, that, that there are many men who have the heart of the pastor but do not have the intellect of the pastor. That is not to say that you need to be of genius IQ to be a pastor, but you do need to read, be able to read and write, unfortunately, unlike many ministers we know today. Three, take heed that your call be sure. Many ministers, many men of God who suppose to take on the pastorate, do so by their own accord. They become saved, converted at a young age, and they think, I'm so passionate and I went to a Young Life study group, and someone told me that I'm articulate and I need to be a pastor. My mom told me I need to be a pastor. In fact, Charles Bridges talks at length about this. No one has ever been called to the pastorate by God through the direction of their mother. Four, see that your work be single-minded. This is a common flaw of many ministers, and I myself have fallen to this many, a great deal of times, actually. But by single-purposed and single-minded, your purpose is the gospel as a minister. Which means you're not concerned with yourself. Which means when somebody attacks your public character, for example, they are not attacking you. They are attacking the gospel and God's call to you as a minister. There are many ministers that deserve to be called out. But the Bible gives us direct, explicit instruction on how to do that. So see that your work be single-minded. Be undeterred. If you are pursuing God's truth and you are doing so faithfully, exegetically, passionately, let no man cast down what you're doing. That goes for everybody. Do not cave to the whisperings of men and the folly of the world. Stand upon the Holy Scriptures. Five, see that you understand the extent, nature, and importance of the office of minister. Unlike the modern period, ministers and lay people alike used to actually respect pastors. Now, this is not the case. This is not the case. In fact, men like Joel Beakey can be mocked openly. There are some good implementations of theonomy. Do you, do you have the, the Beakey quote? No, do you want to bring... The greatest indication that you can see that somebody does not take their pastoral role seriously is if they care more about their doctoral titles, their accomplishments, their books, than their role as minister. This is very common. If somebody has a doctorate and, you, and you're in their church and you say doctor and they don't correct you, you say pastor. 
Six, see that ye deal not treacherously with the Lord. As a pastor, you have a single purpose, a single call, and that is to the Lord and to, the, to God's people. This was his warning. See that you deal not treacherously. See that you not deal divisively. Do not scheme against the people of God. Do not scheme against the Lord. Seven, see that you be not ashamed of your pastoral work. Do not do anything to scandalize the pulpit, which again is something that people do every single day in the modern church. Affairs, controversies, sexual abuse scandals like in the, the, the Arbka right now. Eight, see that ye be judicious, upright, constant, and faithful. There are many men of God that, men and women, who forget this idea of constant. Constancy, consistency, is the most important aspect of your Christian profession. It does not matter if for a moment that you have a burst of energy in the Lord. You go and you sing a song, you cry a little bit, but you're great moments. I've had many of these moments. But constant. Be consistent in your profession. Stand on what you believe in. In the public square, in your private life, in all places. Be constant. And nine, finally, always improve and live on that blessed encouragement offered to you as both a Christian and a minister. Rest in the blessings that are offered to you in Christ and not the blessings offered to you by compromise in the world. These were the nine instructions that he gave to his ministerial students prior to even opening up the work of theology. And in fact, any good theological systematic will do that. His prolegomena, which is the introduction, the first things, addresses three topics. The law of nature, the insufficiency of that law to lead to salvation, and an elaborate treatment of the divine character of the Holy Scriptures, which somehow Dane and I have coordinated topics every week of this series, which is just incredible, because I plan on discussing his view of Scripture uh, for a little while today. And hopefully it would be beneficial and encouraging to you guys. And just so that you guys know, um, briefly mentioning, uh, the the Reformed view of the Scriptures is easily uh, demonstrated by reading the people in the post-Reformation. And so we're going to look at that today. He frames the third topic, as in the nature of the Holy Scriptures, in this light, covenantally. He first talks about how nature is insufficient to save, how there needed to be a divine revelation. Due to the present state of mankind, a supernatural revelation of God's mind and will is necessary to promote man to a state of true virtue and happiness. The works of man being infinitely heinous and deserving of infinite punishment in light of God's infinite excellency and authority need such a deposit from God that reveals the infinite satisfaction of the wrath of God by the Almighty Deliverer. The scriptures are that deposit which reveals such a Deliverer who pays for the infinite satisfaction which is due. Who in the modern period has ever talked about the Holy Scriptures like that? No one. Not a single person. And so... I will argue vehemently that we, in fact, do need to return back to a time when people revered the Holy Scriptures. Which has been called retreating recently. I'm fine with retreating if that retreat is more faithful. And we're standing on something that means something. Standing on God's promise. He goes on to argue that such a deposit would be internally perfect. He uses the words perfect. And consistent with the law of nature, but unfolding remarkable truths undiscovered by the law of nature. What this means is that while 
the, the light of nature, the law of nature, does indeed reveal a certain character and nature about God. This is natural theology. We, we read this uh, in, in, in Romans 1 and in Psalm 19 and things of that nature. But it's insufficient to lead men unto salvation, is it? Isn't it? And so, so, so this deposit would, would reveal un, remarkable truths that were undiscovered by the law of nature. And these remarkable truths would pertain to the pardon of sin, future happiness, and eternity. And the things as they related to both of these matters. Which is essentially to say the nature of salvation both now and future. He then says that externally, so that was internally, what is the nature? And, and he goes on to talk about the majesty of the scriptures, the, the, the beauty of the form. The, the, and, you, and you read the, the Puritans, the, the such reverence that they give to the actual words of scripture. But then he goes on to say that externally, that quote, God by his providence should discover a singular care in the presentation and safe convoyance of it from one generation to another in page 45. And I thought that we might actually inspect his actual words. Starting on page uh, 62. Perhaps indeed, all the apostles were dead before the canon of scripture was fully fixed in the Christian church. But their original autographs might be extant and well known. It is certain that in the second century of the Christian era, Theophilus of Antioch in Syria, Irenaeus in France, Tertullian of Carthage... Clemens of Alexandria in Egypt, quote the very same sacred books which we now have, which proves that copies of them were, them were spread through all the Christian churches in Asia, Africa, and Europe. In the third and fourth centuries, we have 11 catalogs of these canonical books, seven of which are the same as in our Bibles. Origin at about AD 210, hath them all but James and Jude. Eusebius in about 315, hath them all. This goes against the narrative that the canon was created in 387 at the Council of Carthage, doesn't it? But says that, though generally received, some doubted the, of the epistles of James and Jude, Second Peter and Third John. Cyril, about 346, Council of Laodicea at 364, have all of them but the Revelation. Athanasius, about 315, Nazianzen, 375, Jerome, 382, Ruffin, 390, Augustine, and the Council of Carthage, in 394, have them all. But the act of council, if genuine, gives too much honor to some apocryphal books. Now, he goes on to extensively deal with the apocrypha, the nature of the Septuagint, all of the questions that are asked by people, the quotations of pagan, of pagan writers in the New Testament, he actually makes the same argument that was called foolish by some unmentionable people. And so does Turretin. What Does it surprise anybody that his view of scripture aligns with that of Turretin? Why? He was trained in ministry by examining with, with Ebenezer Erskine the writings of Francis Turretin which remained the pastoral standard until it was replaced with Charles Hodge. And, and at this point in time, shift, it, it be, began a shift in the way that theology was taught. But up until that point, the theological climate was much like this. It was much like this. So we're going to read some more. We're going to keep on reading. So what he thought... And the general view of all the reformers in regards to the manuscripts and in regards to the variants says this. Meanwhile, a judicious comparison of many copies which are tolerably exact is an excellent manner and method for, creating, for correcting a book. And he says that he recognizes to over 20,000 variant readings, 125 copies of manuscripts. He actually goes and lists for far too long all of the things that he knows about the nature of the manuscripts. So it's very interesting, very interesting 
the false information that is very common. In fact, some, some people would say that the Bible was created at the Council of Nicaea in 325. In fact, that was about the divinity of Christ. Not about the Trinity, about the divinity of Christ. The Council of Carthage did not decide upon the canon. The canon had already existed at that point. In any case, he continues, And as all attempts to determine which are fundamental and which are not are calculated to render us deficient and slothful in the study of religious knowledge, to fix precisely what truths are fundamental and what not is either necessary nor profitable nor safe nor possible. But it is certain that the whole of the Christian religion doth not consist in the temper of mind or in the observance of God's command and having hope in his promise without regard to orthodoxy of principles. What he is saying here is a direct refutation of the idea that we have all the important doctrines. He goes on to talk about who's to decide what the important ones are. Are not all of the doctrines important? Is not every word of God beautiful and true and perfect? He says, even if one were, were to be able to do it, which we can't, he said the attempts to do so would be foolish to try to categorize which doctrines are important and which are not. Who wants to try to take on that task of deciding and cataloging which doctrines are important enough to be in the Bible? Right. Right. Exactly. So I heavily recommend this volume is actually quite cheap. I think I got it for maybe $14. Tons of scripture proofs. And I would say that John Brown of Haddington is a great representation of Reformation thought as it pertains to Purit- Scottish Puritans. Yeah, I mean, I would, uh, on, a, on a lay level, I'd recommend you guys all have that in your library. About half the page of every page is scripture references to look up. Um, and it, it, it solidifies basically all the best of post Reformation scholastic thought and Puritan warmth and Systematic Theology by John Brown of Haddington. What I hope that you guys have gained from this lecture, several things. The first, that the work of the pastor is not that of a debater, is not even that of an author. It is not that of a public politician or a public figure. It's an office ordained by God, approved by, confirmed by man, by the people of God, for the benefit of the people of God. And if pastors lose sight of that purpose, of that singular purpose, they often become wrapped in controversy. And they lose sight of various precious truths. So as your pastors, Dane and I, we covet your prayers. We covet your support. Not blind support, but we covet your support. Secondly, I hope that you have benefited from this lecture and understanding that our modern Christian culture is very, very, very weak and watered down. We do not treat catechism seriously. Our private devotions are awful and meager and wanting. What you guys know about theology, most eight-year-olds knew at the time of John Brown of Haddington. We ought not to think more highly of ourselves than we do or than we should. As we talked about today in the sermon We have access to more than anyone has ever had in the history of the world. And yet, we relegate our Bible time to 15 minutes a week, pray maybe five minutes a day at our convenience. We put God last. And the product of this is evident. People do not believe in their Bible anymore. People do not read their Bible, even if they do believe in it. People do not pray anymore. Pastors do not preach anymore. This is overwhelmingly the testimony of the evangelical church right now. 
And so if you want to say that modernity is better, then show me that the modern church is better. I think you'd have a hard case to make. Modernity has resulted in all sorts of failures of society, including high rates of suicide, depression, lack of identity, failure of purpose, drug abuse, sex crimes, crimes against humanity, genocide. That is the product of modernity and the thoughts of Kant and Schleiermacher and Nietzsche and Darwin. And so as a Reformed church, we do not exult in the thoughts that came from that. We exult in the thoughts that came before. And so I hope that you guys have benefited from this lecture in that, in returning to the old paths, what does it encourage you to do? To read your Bible more, to pray more, to pray more reverently, to have conference, to hang out with each other more, to fellowship more, to treat the pastoral role with much due respect as there is no other means that the Lord has given you outside of the Bible, prayer, your pastor, and your church. You will not receive a private revelation from God later this evening, and if you do, come seek us, for we will pray and cast that demon out of you. And finally, I hope that you guys have benefited from this lecture in understanding that the nature of the Scriptures are self-authenticating. God has indeed preserved his word and testifies to it in the very fact that we have a Bible today. We have spent much time at Agra's Church examining evidences, giving proofs, talking about history, ad nauseum. We did it for 18 weeks. At the end of that process, some of you were convinced But I might argue that if you own a Bible and you do not read it as though it is speaking to you, it is as though it is the words of God, then that 18 weeks meant nothing to you. And in fact, when you understand the Bible as something to be proved, you've missed the point already. The Bible is something that will prove you to either be a Christian or an infidel. And those who wish to mock the people of God for believing in God's word as preserved perfectly every line will be judged either here or more severely at the end of their life. It is no honor to suppose some false scholarly supposition to judge and grade the scriptures like a test at seminary. And I tell you, we all struggle with it. We all struggle with the thought it must be proved. Why? Because you're a modern person. You have been taught that all things must be tested, all things must be proved. There is no supernatural power to the world. There is no creator. This is the catechism that you received growing up. There is no magic in this world. And if you believe there is no magic in this world, I invite you to observe a sunset and many, many other great beauties in nature. So to conclude this lecture, we can learn a lot more from the men pre-enlightenment than we can from the men after the enlightenment. And I know that is a controversial thought today because those men didn't know anything except for literally all the languages, all the ancient fathers. They had their whole Bibles memorized. They invented all the sciences. And so when we take our modern lens and say, we know better than them, you vastly overestimate your own intelligence you vastly overestimate your own intelligence. And as Christians, we ought to not vastly overestimate anything about ourselves except our own sin, which you will never accomplish in any sort of meaningful way. In fact, we underestimate our sin daily. 
So you may question me. You may question my thoughts on the matter. But the fact remains that when you get to eternity, you will find out that I am woefully right here. Modernity has nothing to offer you. Return to the old paths, church. Return to the people who had their Bibles memorized. Return to the, to the people whose children knew more scripture than you. If that is not evidence that their method was better, I don't know what is. So as we go from this place, church, I encourage you to take seriously the word of God and what it says about you and not think what you have to say about it. I encourage you to go and memorize scripture, which I will be starting a memorization plan this week if anyone wants to join me. I encourage you that when you go out and preach the gospel, not to dabble on about evidences and geo-rock layers and which manuscripts are better, but to preach Christ and him crucified. And trust that the power of God and the Holy Spirit in the preaching of the gospel is what brings men to Christ. There is not a single ounce of power in an evidence as it pertains to salvation. As it pertains to an encouraging the elect, great amounts of power. There is great comfort in the evidences provided from a believing perspective about the word of God, about the nature of creation. But we do not tarry on about these things with the unbeliever because it is not wise unto salvation. It does nothing for them. In fact, you are wasting their time. And you are wasting your time if you are not preaching the gospel to the unbeliever in these sorts of conversations. Right. Isn't that crazy? God said he would use foolishness. So in fact, to argue academically in a gospel situation is to deny the fact that God said it wouldn't be that way. Pearls. Thank you guys for listening to this lecture. I hope it has been beneficial to you. I hope that you have learned more about your heritage. And I hope that you are encouraged to go on, read your Bible with faith, memorize your Bible with faith, and go and preach the word of God to all that they might know the same Savior which saved you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for this time. We thank Thee for Thy Son. We pray that Thou wouldst bless us as we go into this week. Bring us close unto Thee. Give us faith and conviction and hope and courage and boldness to put to death our sin, to cling unto Thee and to love Thee more and love each other better. In Jesus' name, amen.